So movies and television and songs tell us that Christmas means a great many different things. Sometimes we're told that Christmas is about being together with family. Pop music says that it's about getting that person that you love as a gift. Advertisements tell us Christmas is the season of giving, namely giving material things that we buy from them. And the, the list of, of more or sentimental things could go on and on for a while, but I'm sure that you have a sufficient list of your own. And it's likely not going to surprise you that I'm going to say that none of those things are the real reason for Christmas. But just because you suspect that a Christian minister would take issue with a popular characterization does not mean we actually agree about what the real reason for Christmas is. Because you see, the real reason, the actual reason for Christmas is that you are a wicked sinner. Time with family, deep generosity, and even romantic love were all built into creation. Good things about which we read in Genesis 1. But at Christmas, we mark the birth of our Savior. And we only need saving because of our sin. So today, I want to probe into that theme by looking at John 1, 1 to 14. And this is a classic passage about how the Son of God comes to earth. But we can consider it now, this morning, in light of our nearness to Christmas and how it points to our deep need for the arrival of this Savior. And the crucial thing I want you to see today, crucial thing, is how we need to accept, we have to realize and comprehend that we have wronged God. But there is salvation available in Jesus Christ. And so the plan for today is to work through this passage from John and point to our need for Christ. And we want to see the deep reasons for this Christmas holiday that we're about to observe. Now, here's the thing. I think most people in the Western world have some notion that Christmas has a historical link, at least, to Christianity. And likely most have some understanding, broadly at least, that this holiday is about the birth of Christ, whom Christians believe is our Savior. But beyond that, our society has lost track of what Christians really celebrate at Christmas. And John 1 is the perfect antidote for that. And so the first thing that we need to do here is think about who Jesus Christ is. So we'll see when we think about who Jesus Christ is, is that the eternal person of the Word of God becomes the human being, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate at Christmas. Now we get a taste of this right from the outset of this passage. If you'll read verses 1 to 4 with me, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And here, I don't want to leap over anything and assume we all know what this is about. This passage begins, as you might have picked up, with an allusion back to Genesis 1.1. We read Genesis 1 almost exclusively for this. We'll think about it a little more. But that verse, Genesis 1.1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John... The apostle who wrote this gospel is is drawing a connection, literarily, in the way that he describes these events between the one God of the Old Testament who created everything and this word that contributed to the creation of all things. So I want to head off one thing because some people are likely asking this question about this issue of the Word's involvement in creation. It might be thought that since the Word was with God, there is a hard and fast distinction between God and the Word. But if we read well, we see that not only was this... It says that this Word was God... But we see also that everything that was made, so every single thing that we can call creation or created, all the things that were made, were made by the Word. So when we read Genesis 1, and we see all those verbs where God does something, God makes, God forms, this Word participates in those actions. But the biblical premise is that God is the only uncreated being. And so this word must also be God, since he created all things. And so this word is the maker, fully God. And the crucial point, to to bring some relevance to this that John made, is that this word is the source of life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The word which we saw was divine, equated with God, contains life. This is the source of life, which is why he is able to create. Have you thought about that? That because God is life, That's why He is the Maker. The Godhead so abounds with life that God can grant life even to creatures that otherwise could have no sort of existence because God is so full of life. The Word, though, is the light of men. Light of men. Meaning the Word is that which can provide illumination and right direction for all humanity, if we will see it. And at this point, I want you to jump down 
really quickly with me to verse 14. And so we can pull all this together where John wrote, and the word, meaning that eternal person that was himself God, became flesh, meaning that divine person of the word assumed a human nature and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so to pull together, to draw together all the things and the reasons why we've camped on that first section about the word, the word who is God actually came to earth, draped in humanity. And to put it in perhaps more familiar terms, we see here biblical testimony that the eternal Son of God was born on earth as a man. And Christians celebrate this event at Christmas. So, to remind you where we are, we've been thinking about who Jesus Christ is. And if you are here and you've never really understood why Christians make a big deal about this fellow Jesus, well, now you should know. We believe Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God, the eternal divine Word who has always been with God, participating even in the work of creation. We believe Jesus is God. And so we worship Him. And we commemorate His arrival in human nature. And so now, having established who Jesus Christ is, we have to shift our attention a little bit to how people reacted to His coming, which shows us this this reaction to the coming of Christ shows us why we need Christ. So that's the second thing we're thinking about, why we need Christ. And we find what should be some, it should be really shocking material in verses 9 to 11. If you'll drop your eyes there. The true light, meaning the eternal light, the Son of God, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And what we have here is a, is a summary of what happened when the Son of God was born as Jesus Christ and walked on this planet. The Son of God, the, the light who grants gifts to all people and who is revealing objective truth to everyone who encountered Him, so giving them light, came into the world which He Himself created and most people denied that He's the Creator. Let's think about babies for a second. So a baby, I did look into this, so I'm not making it up. It seems that they are able to recognize 
their father's voice even before they're born, which is amazing. And, and so fathers are encouraged to speak to their babies even while they are still in the womb. I mean, that's an incredible thing, and it doesn't seem obvious, but it is an amazing ability that even the weakest of human beings have this uh, capacity to uh, recognize voices even while they are still tied to their mother for every ounce of nourishment, and they can't even breathe on their own. And before they even have any muscle capacity, hardly at all, they can identify the voice of someone who made them. Which should give us pause. I imagine you know where I'm going with this. The point is that human beings are hardwired from the very beginning, <coughs> excuse me, even to recognize they're humanly creators. If babies go too long without being able to recognize their parents, we do in fact conclude that something is wrong developmentally. And what, therefore, should we think when humans are not able to recognize their God? Much more, the nation of Israel was unable to recognize the very Messiah they eagerly awaited, whom God had promised to them for centuries or even longer. Because these verses are meant to point out exactly that issue, the problem of people unable to recognize their maker. For everyone who does not realize who Jesus Christ is, they have a problem, a developmental problem with their spiritual faculties. If our our sense of God is so damaged that we cannot recognize God when He stands literally in front of us. Does the deeds of God and even tells us that He is our God and Savior, if we can't recognize Him then, then something is wrong. Instead of rejoicing that their Messiah had come, the Israelites instead rejected and crucified Him. And that's what's meant here in verse 11, that He came to His own, meaning Israel, and His own people. The Israelites who should have been expecting and able to know their Messiah did not receive Him. Now the whole set of Books by the prophets in the Old Testament was was heralding the coming Messiah who would rescue his people. John the Baptist, whom verses 6 to 8 described, was the one sent by God to be a witness to who Christ is. And he was on the scene directly before Jesus came to prominence, reminding people about the need to repent and explicitly pointing to Christ as the divine Messiah. And then, on top of that, Jesus did the works 
of the Messiah and kept telling people that's who he was. <coughs> so there was no excuse for not understanding that Jesus is the divine person who had come to save his people. Now, I mean, the thing is, we might read these gospel narratives and think, my goodness, these people in these stories must be totally thick if they can't get the ramifications of Jesus' specific miracles. I mean, just think, for example, Jesus walked on the water. And Job 9.8 tells us, God alone treads on the waves. He's doing the actions of God. And moreover, his Jesus' overt teaching about salvation and the role he would play in it. We read this, these accounts and these narratives, and we think, man, how can they not get it? It's crystal clear. And yet, are people today not the same? I mean, do we do we not have 2,000 years benefit of reflecting on the Scriptures and the Christ event? Why would fishermen give their lives to a message about a crucified carpenter to the degree that would lead to their own executions? I mean, certainly not about getting political power. They didn't get that. Why would they do that? Unless they really believed it was true that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again for the salvation of sinners. And still, people deny Jesus is the Son of God every day. And moreover, they deny that they even need rescue from God's coming wrath. Perhaps that might even be some of you here this morning. It is Christmas after all. And hosts of people come out to church just for the sake of it. This one time of year. And yet the rest of the year you live in total disregard for Christ and your need for Him. And perhaps the issue is precisely that you don't think you need this Jesus for rescue. Perhaps even if, you, even if you're on board with the whole notion of God, you're of the opinion that you have no need for Jesus in order to be in a right relationship with God. Maybe, maybe you think you're a relatively good person. So why would God ever be mad at you? We do, we do, I mean, we really have this tendency to think that we are rather wonderful. And that the so-called God of love should celebrate our every decision. And perhaps you think Jesus is primarily a great example and a good moral teacher. That 
watered-down view of God that disfigures the true understanding of God's love totally ignores God's justice. It ignores that a God who genuinely loves purely cannot set aside the good things of his law. We would not think a judge in our worldly courts was a very loving person if they let every criminal go. Because we would realize, we would see that they just set all the criminals free to go harm everybody else time after time after time. And so too, God would not be loving in any sense if he were not concerned with the standards of his law, which he built into us as people made in his image. We know God is a just God. Romans 2, 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the written law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the written law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus (coughs) so you do in fact scripture attests you do in fact know that God demands a record of perfect righteousness you might deny that but it is stamped into your nature As the image of God, God demands perfect righteousness from you if he is to allow you entrance into his kingdom. That knowledge is fused into your nature as a human being, the divine image. And so, so to sum all this up, to gather it together, if your response to Jesus is anything other than fleeing to him, begging Him for rescue from the curse of the law, pleading with Him to cover your sins in forgiveness and credit His record of perfect righteousness to you, desperately wanting Him to intercede for you in the courts of heaven. If that is not your response, then you don't know Him. And you have not received Him You have not recognized Him. And there's something wrong. So we've considered who Jesus Christ is. That He's that eternal Word of God. The eternal on the second person of the Trinity who came to earth in human nature. And we have considered the response to Jesus Christ that people entrenched in their sin 
refuse to see him for who he truly is, the necessary Savior of sinners. And so now we need to turn lastly to think about why the coming of the eternal word of God in Jesus Christ is good news. Why is the birth of Jesus Christ good news for us? Why can we say with the angel in Luke 2 that it is glad tidings of great joy to celebrate the birth of Christ the Lord? And in fact, it can be glad tidings of great joy for every person in this room and around the globe that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. But we have to unpack why and how it can be glad tidings. (coughs) Good news. Because the birth of Christ could be bad news. Turn with me, if you would, briefly to John 3. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20. As something leapt out at me last Sunday as Reverend Pearson was preaching on John 3. <coughs> Excuse me. So think, think about how we have already seen that the Son of God is the true light. <clears throat> and here, John returns to that theme... And so he writes, wrote, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So, here's the issue. The, The birth of Christ may not be good news for you if you refuse to see him as the Son of God or to run to him for salvation. <clears throat> if you refuse the light, then it means, John three nineteen that you love the darkness. You love your sin and wickedness. As, a, as another pastor said about this passage, belief and unbelief is about a love affair. And if you do not believe, it is because you are in love, in love with the defilement of breaking God's law. If you don't believe, it, it is not because you're enlightened and cultured. It's because you love wickedness. And the birth of Christ in that case is bad news. Because it means you are condemned. Those who reject Christ, John 3.18, are condemned already. Our sin deserves condemnation because it is grounded 
It is planted in a love for wicked things. If you love your sin, then you hate God. But the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God became a man and walked this planet. And yet His purpose was not just to live as a man, but to die. And to die vicariously for you. Jesus Christ was crucified not as a victim, but as the willing Son of God who climbed the cross to pay the penalty that you owe for breaking God's law. And to those who do receive Him, John 1.12, the good news, those who believe in His name, place their trust in Christ, He gave the right, the legal grounded privilege, the right to become children of God. Not every person is a child of God. Some of you are children of wrath. But if you would come to Christ, God would adopt you. Christ's blood would wash away your sins and make you righteous in God's sight. So, I mean, here, here's where it all comes together. There is, there are glad tidings of great joy, good news that Jesus Christ welcomes you to His cross today and invites you to come to Him to trust and work to forgive your sin. So would, would you do that now? The first time or the thousandth time? Doesn't, we all need the gospel every week. Would we not flee to Christ now? Would we not run to Jesus who offers you the forgiveness of sin, the adoption as children of God, and eternal life in His kingdom? That is the Savior whom we celebrate at Christmas. And I do pray that each of you would know Him as such. Let's pray together.